Well, good morning, Soul City Church. How you doing, 11 o'clock? Oh, yeah, so much better than the nine. Good to see you. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, my name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church, and I- I'm so glad that you are here today. We have been in a teaching series on the life of David, this incredible life of David called Caves and Crowns. And today we're actually wrapping up that teaching series by looking at a really important chapter towards the end of David's life. This has been such a powerful uh, teaching series for our church. If you missed any of it, uh, you could go and catch up on our podcast or online. Lots of folks are watching online right now, actually. Uh, So you can catch up on all that because you don't want to miss a minute of it. With this weekend being Thanksgiving weekend, a lot of family in town, you know, such a great restful weekend. I thought uh, I'd have a nice, offer you like a nice, light message this weekend on adultery and murder and the abuse of power. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. It's going to be a fun one. So we're actually going to get into a really important chapter at the end of David's life where we see David wrestle with a question uh, that is incredibly important to the outcome of his story. It's a question actually that's at the heart of every major decision you've ever made. In fact, it's a question that you face, whether you realize or not, every single day, every decision you make. How you answer this question can lead you into life-changing, life-saving direction. How you answer this question can lead you to disastrous decisions that can affect and hurt and harm not only you, but those that you love and those around you. The question we're going to watch David walk through today is this. Who sits on the throne of your heart? Who sits on the throne of your heart? Did you know your heart has a throne and something, someone needs to sit on that throne? And whoever it is or whatever it is that sits on the throne of your heart determines and directs the decisions that you actually make. Lots of different People put lots of different things on the throne of their heart. Not all of them bad things. Some people put their career on the throne of their heart. So every decision they make is about advancing their career, building their career. Some people put their finances on the throne of their heart. And so it's all about kind of having more, getting more so you can do more. And that really determines and dictates every decision you make. Some people put family on the throne of their heart. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing to have family matter to you, but sometimes it can keep you from the things God wants for you because you've become so fixated on your family. Who is it that sits on the throne of your heart? This is a question we're going to see David wrestle with today. And my hope is for you that as we watch the vacancy of the throne of his heart occur in real time, my hope is that you would actually Put the one, the only one who is fit to rule on the throne of your heart, that you would put God squarely and firmly on the throne of your heart. Now, my hunch is you are at least familiar with David. You don't even have to know a lot about God or about the Bible to have probably heard about David. He's one of the most important characters throughout the whole Bible study, throughout human history. And there's a lot that's been said about, spoken about, written about David. Countless books, there have been movies, works of art. In fact, you know, the most famous statue in all the world, most recognized statue in all the world is actually of David. It's Michelangelo's David. If you were in Florence, you've ever seen it in person, it is an amazing Statue. In fact, I brought a picture so you can get a sense of it. Don't worry, this is the safe for church. 
It's the safer church version of the, just in case. All right, so we covered that. All right, so th- this, I just want you to take a second look. I mean, David, what a beautiful statue. I mean, he is chiseled literally. I mean, he was rocking a six pack before six packs were even invented. And I want you to take a second to look at what this statue of David actually represents. Because this is what we so often do and so easily do with leaders. This is what we so often and so easily do with characters like David in the Bible. We put them on a pedestal of perfection and carve all of our little projections and expectations onto them, smoothing them into something more presentable or something more respectable, but in truth, something that they never were and never can be. David is far from a perfect person. In fact, what you're going to find out today is that he was actually a human person, just like you, just like me, filled with complicated complexities and a battle within his own heart for who would sit on the throne of his heart. Now, again, if you know even just a little bit about David, you probably know that there are two names that are typically associated with the life of David. Two names that, again, people who aren't even really familiar with the Bible know about when they think about David. These two names actually represent and reveal David's heart. These two names represent one of them a victory, one of them a defeat. Both stories are connected to stories of power, one at the beginning of his life and one towards the end. The names that are most commonly associated with David are David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. And we're going to, we've already looked a little bit at David and Goliath. Today, what I want us to explore is the story of David and Bathsheba and what happened to the throne of David's heart and what God did in response to him. So grab a Bible, if you would, please, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you brought a Bible with you, fantastic, got it on your phone, that's great. If not, right in the seat back in front of you there, there should be a Bible, looks just like this. You can grab that. We provided that for you, so you can turn to page 247 in the Soul City Bible. That'll get you there super fast to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me give you some context as to where we're at in the life of David. This is much, much later in his life. He's actually already been king for many years. Uh, He's done an incredible job of keeping God on the throne of his heart. He's experienced tremendous success as the second king to ever rule over Israel. I mean, he started from the bottom and God has raised him to incredible heights. And it's safe to say, as we come into this part of the story, that David has it all, but it's still somehow not enough. He has everything he could possibly have imagined, beyond what he could have ever imagined. But still, somehow, just like you and me, it's not enough. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Let's dive into this together. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained where? David remained in Jerusalem. All right, so what Samuel is doing here is Samuel is a masterful writer and he's painting pictures for us with words. Right off the bat, Samuel is giving you a clue, kind of a spoiler alert to the fall that is about to come on David. He makes a note that it's springtime, you know, 
the time when kings go off to war. I know that you already knew that, but he wants you to know that. It's spring. You know, it's time to move your clocks forward an hour, clean out your closet, vanquish all of your enemies. You know, (laughs) springtime, like we do. And so he's letting you know that that's kind of a thing in their tradition, their time. That's when kingdoms would wage war. But when they're off waging war, where does Samuel say David is? He's in Jerusalem. He's at home. He's not with his soldiers like a good king would be. In fact, David is not where he is supposed to be. And this is perhaps the most fertile soil for sin, if ever there was any. When you and I are not where we're supposed to be, when we're not where we're supposed to be, when we're talking with someone other than our spouse a little too late, a little too long, When no one is up, no one is looking, when everyone's left the office, when we're not where we're supposed to be, this is some of the most fertile soil for sin, and Samuel is letting us know. And look what happens. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. So that overlooked all of the kingdom. So David is up there looking over all that he rules and reigns over. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man came back and said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So what is Samuel letting us know here? Well, he's letting us know that David sends someone. You know, he's got people to do this stuff for him now that he's king. So David sends someone off to be his wingman. Hey, there's this lady down there. I want you to go get some, you know, get some deeds for me. Kind of find out a little bit about her and report back to me. And so that's exactly what happens. But the news he gets back is not what he wanted. What he finds out is Bathsheba is her name and she is married. She's married. And just for those of you keeping score at home, so is David. Let's just set the record straight. So is David. So he gets this news back that she's married, but she's not only married, she's married to Uriah. Now, why is that important for you to know? Because Uriah was one of David's most trusted soldiers. In fact, Uriah was one of the handful of men that David grabbed with him when he ran for his life from King Saul. Those eight years that we looked at two years ago, those eight years David spent in the caves, do you know who was with him in the caves? Uriah. So David knows. She's married. She's married to Uriah. You know Uriah. This is a moment for David to come clean, to wake up, and to go back to bed. And I know all of us have moments like that in our life. I bet you can pinpoint back to some of the biggest or dumbest mistakes you've ever made and could say, Oh, if only I would have, or if only I wouldn't have sent that text at three in the morning, if only I wouldn't have said that to my boss, if only I wouldn't have used those words in front of my kids, I bet you can go back to a moment and say, boy, if I could do that one over again, I would. This is that moment for David. All he has to do is turn around and go back to bed, come clean, because the throne of his heart is up for grabs in this moment. But look what he does. Verse 4. Then David sent messengers to what? To get her. Notice the language Samuel uses here. Sent messengers to get her. She came to him. What choice did she have? And he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. And then look at the details. Then she went back home. 
Samuel does not sensationalize a second of this story. He uses cold and callous facts to convey the cruelty of this moment. David does not seduce Bathsheba. David doesn't play the long game of getting to know her, building some trust and rapport. He has a desire. He's the king. He's in power. He wants her, and so he has her. And when he's done, he sends her away. This is an incredible moment in the life of an incredible character in the Bible. He was in the position of power, and he took advantage of that power by taking advantage of Bathsheba. Now just pause back to this moment. Does that story sound at all familiar to any news stories you've heard over the last couple months? Does this ring true to any of you of the current cultural moment that we actually find ourselves in? It sounds like it could be pulled right from the headlines today because we are living in a very unique cultural moment right now. We're in a moment of cultural reckoning right now where we are waking up and taking names of those who would use and abuse their power or influence to take advantage of others. From celebrities to newscasters to politicians, this is not a news story. In fact, all of the news stories are not a news story. This is an old story that's been going on as long as people have been in power. For centuries, people in power, usually men, have used and abused their power to get what they want, when they want, from whom they want, with seemingly zero consequences. But in this moment in our country, the tide is turning. Thank God it is long overdue. And I don't know if you've noticed that in all the headlines that break, it's never the abuser who comes forward, is it? It always has to be the victim to have the courage to come out and say what was done to them. Listen, I have a whole other message I want to preach on the current cultural moment that we're in right now, but I have some other stuff I gotta get through, so we'll save it for the director's cut. Come find me afterwards, I'll give you some thoughts on that. Now, why is it so important for us to pay attention to this story that's as old as time of people using and abusing power? Because here's what happens to me when the next celebrity, the next politician, the next newscaster comes on and we find out the things they've been doing to use and abuse their power. Do you know what my first thought is when I see that on the news? How could they? How could they? I go to a real place of righteous indignation. How could they? Can you believe? I looked up to that person. I respected that person. How could they? And it's easy to go to that place, isn't it? Do you know what a better question to ask is? How do I? How do I use or abuse my influence or power? How do I leverage whatever authority I have over others? See, all of us are in a, a struggle, a battle for power. You may not know that, but we all are. In your relationships, in your marriage, there is a real power battle going on. In, for those of you who are parents, there's always a power struggle. Who has the power. And if there's more kids than parents, then you know how that feels. It's a power struggle. At work, there's a power struggle. 
We work hard to climb the ladder so that we can have power and influence over others. There's always a power struggle going on in our relationships. So the question isn't, how could they? The question is, how do I? Is there any way in me that I take God off of the throne and put myself onto it and say that I have the power, I have the knowledge, I have the insight, I can leverage this over other people and get them to do what I want to do? That's what we see David doing. He was deceived by the same delusion of power. He thought that he had gotten what he wanted and that he had actually gotten away with it. But that is rarely how the story ends. Verse five, look what happens. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now, this was not a part of the plan. I mean, David barely had a plan, let's be honest, but this was not a part of the plan. Bathsheba was supposed to be just a nameless, faceless object of David's desire. She wasn't supposed to get pregnant, but the plot thickens because it always does, and our consequences always come calling. May take a while, but our consequences always come calling. Sin never stays neat and clean as we plan or imagine. It never stays in its place. That's because the lesson we can see already from David, and my hunch is you've seen it in your own life, is simply this. Sin spills. Sin spills. It never stays where we tell it to stay. It always has a way of working its way throughout our lives and the lives of others. There are always casualties, people who have to pay the price for our freedom to do whatever we want to do. Sin spills. It spills out onto those that we sin against. It spills over into our families, spills out into our finances, spills out at work, sin spills. It just does. Now, a little picture of that, a little lighter picture of that, because we've been down in it for a little bit. I got to see this and learn this firsthand at a young age. I was 14 years old, somewhere between eighth and ninth grade. I'd been dating a girl for a little while then. Cute little relationship was cute, eighth grade. I mean, how serious is it? It's eighth grade. But we were serious, okay? As serious as you can be. <laughs> but then summer camp came, and she wasn't going to summer camp but lots of other girls were. And so there I am away at summer camp, and I meet another girl. And I think, oh, this girl's awesome. She's pretty cool too. And so even though I had a girlfriend back home, I decided to have a camp girlfriend. <laughs> and so I'm having, and again, how serious can this be? It's like holding hands and, oh, we're going to write to each other. Promise you'll write. And so we had our whole relationship, our whole life really mapped out well beyond the five days that we were at camp. <laughs> and so it was a you know, really important, meaningful relationship. Here's what I didn't know. When I got back home from camp, I thought, oh, this is incredible. I've got, you know, my, my girlfriend in Canada. I've got my uh, girlfriend here at home. Like, this is awesome. This is amazing. What I didn't know was that my girlfriend at home had spies working for her at camp. <laughs> I didn't know that. And they had reported back to her before I got home that I was kind of being cutesy with another girl. And then I got home, she said, what are you thinking? This relationship is overdone. And she broke up with me right there as soon as I got home from camp. Well, yeah, okay, you, okay, okay. You know what, okay. It was eighth grade. Everyone's accepted, everyone's expected to grow, all right? So she breaks up with me the second I get back. But here's the thing. 
I got my Canadian girlfriend. I got this girl from camp. We're going to be great. Here's what I didn't know. She had spies too. And she found out that I had a girlfriend back home and they reported back to her. And in the next letter she wrote, she said, it's over. There's no hope for a future with us. And then what happened was the girl that I'd broken up with at home had told all the other girls in my grade to not touch me, to not date me. I was blacklisted my whole freshman year. Not a girl would go on a date with me. So if you get the lesson here, sin spills people. It really, it just pours out and you can't contain it. Now look, that is a lighthearted lesson that I learned from. <laughs> lighthearted lesson. But I bet if we were to go around the room, we'd say today, yeah, I've seen how sin spills over. I saw what an affair did to our family and how it forever rearranged the dynamics of our family. Yeah, I've seen how sin spills over. I worked for a company where the boss was engaging in ethical activities and I lost a job because of nothing I did because of their sin, their foolishness, their decisions. We live in a, a country, we've seen nations where generations later, we're still paying for the sins of our founding fathers. Do you see, you see how this works? Sin spills. It never stays where we tell it to or we imagine it will. And what we see in this moment in David is what we see in every moment that we take God off the throne and replace it with whatever or whoever else. We see that what sin does is sin always takes you, this is just what I found to be true in my own life, always takes you farther than you wanted to go. Always. It takes you farther than you wanted to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it costs you more than you want to pay. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. It always does. And it keeps you there longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. Sin spills, no matter how much you think you've got it under control. It just does. So what does David do? He does what I do, what you do, what all of us do when sin begins to spill over. He goes into cover-up mode, management mode. He's going he's gonna to be smarter than this. He's going to get ahead of this. So what he does is he actually uh, sends to his generals and said, I want you to send Uriah Bathsheba's husband back home. He has a plan. If I can get Uriah home and he goes home to be with his wife, this baby, they'll never know whether it's mine or whether it's his. They'll think it's his. In fact, so he calls Uriah back home. He says, Uriah, you've been fighting so hard, working so hard. I want you to take a little R and R. I want you to actually go home and be with your wife. You guys really should connect. What a benevolent king David is. That way, when she gives birth, He'll think the baby is his. There's no need to get Maury to shoot a who's the baby daddy episode with King David. He's got the plan all figured out. His plan is perfect, but it doesn't work. Out of solidarity with his other soldiers, listen to this. Uriah slept at the palace gates. He wouldn't even go in his own home because his thought was, if my men can't go home and be with their wives, why should I? Now that's integrity. That's authority. David has to take it up a notch. Okay, he says, Uriah, come over to the palace. I want you to come over. Let's just, you know what? Let's have a couple drinks. Catch up on old times. Remember that one time in the cave? And so they start pouring the wine and pouring the wine and pouring the wine, and he gets Uriah drunk. He says, oh, Uriah, you need to go home. Don't sleep outside. Go home. Your wife's waiting for you. Just go on home. But out of solidarity, even in an altered state, Uriah shows more integrity than David. And he doesn't go home. He sleeps outside of his home that night. 
So David has to take it up another notch for the cover-up. And he says to, his, to Uriah, okay, Uriah, been a great trip. Need to send you back out to the front line. Here, take this letter. It's a handwritten letter from me to king. I want you to give it to your commanding general when you get to the front lines. So Uriah carries with him a letter that says on it to the general, put Uriah where the battle, the fighting is at its most intense. And when he's positioned there, pull the troops back. Abandon him. This is an order from the king. The general has to obey. And that's exactly what happens. David abuses his power, yet again. And we've gone from adultery to murder. And Uriah is killed. (laughs) Do you think sin spills? Do you see how the story has escalated? So the question to ask in this moment, who's on the throne of David's heart? Is it God? Is that what, who's guiding, leading him? What do you think? So what we see here in verse 26, jump down to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him, rightly so. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her, look at the language, had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You think? Again, David in this moment thinks he's gotten away with it. Now, did it go further than he planned? Yeah, of course, but Uriah was now dead and Bathsheba was now forced to be his wife and all was well in the kingdom. And so that's what David thought until, of course, God sends Nathan. Nathan was a prophet of God, a trusted advisor to David. And look what happens, verse one. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David a story. So this is someone David trusts, and Nathan has been told by God what David has done, and so Nathan begins to tell power a story. Brilliant leadership move, by the way. Rather than just coming out and confronting him, he, tells, he uses a metaphor, tells him a story, and this is the story he tells him. He tells him a story about two men, one rich, one poor, one who had hundreds and hundreds of cattle and sheep, one who had one tiny little sheep that he kept as a pet, his best little sheep buddy. So he tells him this story about these two people, and he says, here's the deal. The rich one was having a huge feast, a huge party for all of his friends, and what he did, rather than using his own sheep and cattle, he went and stole the little baby sheep from the poor man and used it as little appetizers, little sheep kebabs to serve at the party. He stole from that man and killed his sheep and used it for his own party. Nathan is telling David the story and David is getting enraged as he hears the story. Chapter 12, verse five says this, David burned with anger against the imaginary, just so you know, imaginary man. David burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Love the righteous indignation here, David. Love how this is all coming up for you, how the story's got you all fired up. Can you even imagine David is stewing as he hears this story? What kind of man would do that? Verse seven, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. David, it's you. It's you. Oh, how God loves to use Nathans in our lives. How God loves to use people who love us enough to tell us the truth. 
to say, you are the one. You're the one. It's you. You can't see it. You are so blinded. You are in so much cover-up mode. You can't even see it, but I see. It's you. And I thank God. There are a couple Nathans that I have in my life. I thank God for them. I've given them permission. You are Nathan. Speak into me. My friend Mark is a Nathan to me. Just holds me to who God created me to be. Helps me keep God on the throne of my life. My friend Jim does the same. Helps me see what I can't see about myself. My friend Lauren does this. She, on a regular basis, every week we have a phone call, and she asks questions that help me see me better when I can't see me. My wife, Jeannie, is perhaps the greatest Nathan I've got in my life, like it or not. I've tried turning the Nathan switch off on her. She doesn't have an off switch for the Nathan switch for her. She has the courage. They have the courage to say to me, it's you. Listen, I don't need any more people in my life telling me you're the man. I need people in my life telling me you are the man. You're the one. And so do you. You don't need anyone else brushing you, telling you how awesome or amazing you are. That's only stroking your false self. You need people in your life that say to you, it's you. You're the man. You're the woman. Can't you see? Who's taken the throne of your heart? Do you have anyone like that in your life? Any Nathans in your life that love you enough to speak the truth to you? Maybe there's a leader in your life, a small group leader in your life, a spouse, a trusted friend. Do you have any Nathans? Here's the deal. Because we may not always like our Nathans, but we will always need them. I will always need Nathans in my life, and so will you. And if you have some Nathans in your life, are you listening to them? Rather than getting defensive, rather, oh, you don't understand, oh, it's not such a big deal, you weren't there, are you listening to the Nathans in your life that have been telling you, look, it's you, you can't even see it. Look what's happening. Look what you're doing. Look how you've replaced God from the throne of your heart. Well, after this confrontation conversation with Nathan, David finally, finally comes clean with God. He comes clean and confesses all that he had done, and he was broken over it. And it all came crashing down on him because consequences always come calling and his family would never be the same again. Do you know that not long after this story, years later in fact, David's stepson Amnon would go on to rape David's daughter Tamar. That happened in his own house. David's son Absalom, one of his favorite children, started a violent coup against David to take the throne from David and died suddenly in the process. Eventually David's son Solomon would rule over Israel, but he would lose the kingdom, lose God's favor and blessing because of his obsession with women. Do you see how sin spills? How it can affect those around us? And while you may not have it all like David, only to lose it all like David, I think we can all learn a powerful, powerful lesson from this tragic final chapter of his life. And it would be great if this lesson came wrapped you know, in a sanitized little package in a pretty little bow, but it comes to us like life comes to us gritty and real and raw. And this is the truth that we can all learn from the life of David that all of us can apply to our lives this week. It's better to face the fear 
of coming clean than to face the fallout of being caught. It's always better to face the fear in you of coming clean, of saying, this is what I've done. This is what I've been holding. This is what I've been doing. This is what I've been up to. Facing the fear of coming clean is always better than facing the fallout of being caught. There will still be consequences. There will always be consequences. But when you run from what you've done, the consequences compound. And a whole lot more people end up suffering, including you. Would you be willing to just face the fear of coming clean with whatever it is, however big you've made it, however small you've made it, to just own, to just take responsibility, to do what the Bible calls to confess and say, this is what I've done. This is all of it, all of it, specific details, all of it. Because what I've learned in over 20 years of being a pastor and many more years of being a person is that it always comes out. It always comes out. It always comes back. So it's far better to be the one who says, it's me. Here's what I've done. Here's how I've replaced God from the throne of my heart. Not long after David's conversation and time with Nathan, he did something that I'm so grateful that he had the foresight to do. He actually put a prayer to pen And he wrote down one of the most beautiful and powerful prayers of confession that you'll find in the Bible. It's found in Psalm 51. You don't need to turn there. I just want to read this prayer over you. David's words right after this time with Nathan. And maybe today what they can serve for you as is a way of coming clean. A way of coming home. And finding that there is a God who loves you and who is able to forgive you when you come clean and come to him. This is what it says. Psalm 51, David writes these words, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me because of your unfailing love, because of your great, look at the word, compassion, your love for me. Blot out, cover over the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. And that is so what we long for when we've been carrying sin in us, to just be washed clean from the guilt. Purify me from my sin. Now look at this prayer that is actually a promise that you can cling to today. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. In other words, don't turn your back on me. I know I turned my back on you. But God, out of your loving kindness, don't turn your back on me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy of your salvation. And make me willing to obey you again. See, David is broken in this prayer. But God is back on the throne. He may be broken, torn up, overwhelmed by the weight of his sin. But God is back on the throne 
of his heart. He came home and he came clean only to find that there is a power greater than his. There is a power greater than sin. There is a power greater than anything he had done, a power greater than the grave, and that is the power of grace. Do you know that there is nothing that you can do that can outdo God's grace for you? There is no thing from your past, no thing that you placed on the throne instead of God, nothing in your life that can outdo what God can do for you through his saving grace, his restoring grace, his transformative grace. It's what awaits you when you come clean. And it's what awaits you when you've been caught. It's that big. It's that good. It's that important. It's the only thing that can blot out the stain of my sin, of your sin, that can wash you clean and create a new heart in you. And so what I thought today for our homework, the way that we can take this story and see it lived out in our own stories, is this, I thought it would be great for us to take some time to just come clean. God, don't you want to just be whole and restored and new? Don't you want that? I do. And there's a great next step when we're done with our time here. Our prayer hall is one of the best places for you to go, to have a time of coming home and coming clean to God. But rather than waiting till then, I just thought we'd take a moment right now and do that. For whatever it may be, however it is, or whoever, or whatever, you've p- replaced God on the throne of your heart to just say it. For how you spoke to your spouse, for how you treated your kids, for how you've been gossiping about this coworker, for how you've been hiding this addiction in your life, trying to manage it, for how you lied about that, whatever it may be. I don't know. I just know that we are as complex and complicated and messy as David. And all of us, every single one of us needs God's grace. So I just thought we could take a moment to do that right now. And the way we're going to do that is taking a posture of prayer. You know, the way we pray around here is with hands open, but I want to go even a little bit more old school. And I'm going to ask you if you would, if you're willing to actually bow your head. This is a sign of submitting to authority, to saying that there is a power greater than you, to saying that there is one who actually deserves to sit on the throne of your heart. And so if you would open your hands and bow your head, and I'm just going to let you in your own words to God say whatever it is you need to say. Come clean with whatever it is you need to come clean with. Let this be the first conversation you have about this. Let it be with God. And find what David found a grace that can cover it all. So whatever it is, name it now. Be specific. He already knows your heart. He knows everything about you. The only person we're deceiving here is ourselves. You can come home. You can come clean today. And God, that is our prayer. We lean on, we rely on, we count on your great grace that finds us as we are, where we are, no matter how far it is that we've run from you, no matter what it is that we've done, and says you're forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Forgiveness is possible. The prayer that David prayed, he had no idea 
that Jesus would ultimately fulfill. And so because of that, we can come to your altar right now. We can fall down, not in fear, but in the reality of your love. And God, I pray that we would, that we would have the courage to do that right now. God, I know this may be for some of us here a Nathan moment. This is the reason they came today. And so by your loving spirit right now, would you convict us, comfort us, give us the courage to come clean and come home today. And to find, God, that as we come to you, hands up, head down, we find your arms are open wide and that the freedom and forgiveness we long for that we could never manufacture on our own is found only in you. God, we pray that you would help us today put you back on the throne of our hearts. And thank you, God, that you love us and accept us and forgive us. And so it's in your name that we pray and come to you even now. Amen.